about a guy, and the guy went to an agricultural university and got a degree. Did so well, he got a master's degree. And what he began to do was he started growing uh, crops for different companies, testing out their seeds. So he would prepare a test plot, and he would treat it in appropriate ways, and he would carefully plant the seeds into the ground, and carefully care for and water and nurture these seeds, carefully measure the results, and then he would report them back to the company that had supplied the seed in the first place. And I think it's a very interesting parable that Jesus tells. Of course, that's not exactly the parable that Jesus told. But if I were going to tell a parable, I'd tell that one. I don't want to talk about somebody that just takes seed, just throws it around, who sows it. No, you know, my, the way I approach life is much more careful than that. I prefer to talk about horticulture. You know, I'm just not going to throw seeds around wantonly. I want to place the seed in carefully and study when the conditions are right and, and measure to see what the result and the effect of, of my planting has become. You know, sowing just looks to me to be so extravagant, so almost carefree. And I'm so much more calculating than that. I try to be very careful. You know, the number of seeds we have in life are quite limited. And so we want to deal with them very carefully, or do we? It seems to me the point of Jesus' parable at one level is just the extravagance with which the sower went out to sow. And I look at my life, and that's not how I do it at all. I'm really a horticulturalist. You know, I look at the seeds God has given me, and Mark mentioned some of them to the children. God has definitely given me, God has definitely given to me a number of seeds. The seed that God has given to me, which you have as well, God's given me a seed of love. But you know, before I just distribute this seed, before I plant it, I want to study this. You know, before I love, I want to make sure there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get love back. I don't know if you, did you ever have that awkward situation when you were growing up when, when you, you, you uttered those three words that you love somebody and you met complete blank stare in silence? I don't want that. I want to know that the soil is right and the timing is right. Before I invest my love, I want to plant my love very carefully and to the ground. Seems to me, though, that the people we celebrate in the Bible were all people who seem to love a lot more extravagantly than that. Now, all of us have the seed of time. This is a very important seed. This is a special seed. You know, in many ways, time is the new currency. A lot of people have the attitude that if I lose money, I can always bounce back and make more. But when time is gone, time is gone. And so people like me tend to plant their time very, very carefully. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was a vice president of a major corporation. So when he retired, all these boards and voluntary agencies just clamored after his services. And one day he walked into my office and he sat down and he said, you know, i got to go back to work so I can get control of my time. He wanted to be careful with it. I want to too. Have you ever tried to reach me? Have you ever tried to schedule something with me? You know, I never carry my calendar. It's always on Leah's desk, so that in order to get something on my calendar, you've got to go through two stops. You've got to go through Leah, and then through me. You know, I'm just not going to throw my time around. I want to plant that time carefully and in the best and right way. 
tend to horticulture my time. Well, and then when it comes to my possessions, my money, well, I'm pretty careful with that too. You know, money doesn't grow from seeds. One has to be very careful about one's investments. One needs to make sure that wherever you distribute the seed of your money, that there's a pretty good chance it's going to grow in ways that you can calculate, ways that you can measure, ways that you can know ahead of time and appreciate. I tend, when it comes to my money, to plant pretty carefully, to calculate just what would be the best use of that seed. But some of you may remember what I told you last year about Fred Craddock who grew up in the Depression. His family had to finally leave the family farm. They went and rented a house in Nashville. But the people who owned the house were very smart. They collected the rent from their tenants every week because they knew if they waited a month, the money might not be there. So Fred Craddock said his family had in the kitchen a large jar, a cookie jar, but cookie didn't go in it. Money went in it. Anytime they came across extra money or the children did a chore or made some money selling something out on the street, they took the extra money and put it in that jar so that when the person came to collect the rent, there would always be money there. And Mom guarded the jar pretty carefully. But you know, Dad didn't play by the rules, he said. Dad was always taking money out of that jar, going downtown and buying one of the kids a toy. Or going downtown and getting Mom some flowers and bring it back, and she'd start crying. And she'd say, you know, we really can't afford this. Though between her tears, her heart really wasn't in that. One day, he said, my dad just went over the edge, took everything in the jar, and went and bought my mother something very nice. He came through the door and gave it to her, and my mother just broke down and said, you know we can't afford to do this. And he said, I'll never forget my father's response. My father said to her, if our life ever gets reduced to what's in that jar, we've finished living already. Our life is over. If we ever become so calculating that we measure every dime and every penny and every dollar, we're not living anyway. I tend to be very careful about my love and my time, my money. And really, in general, I tend to be pretty careful with the seed of my life itself. I tend to calculate how best to use it, to spend it, to live it. I tend to be more restrained than a sower who just throws it out. I'm reminded of that great story Anne Lamott tells about an eight-year-old boy whose younger sister is very, very ill, and the doctors say she will need a blood transfusion. And so they come and, and they find that the eight-year-old boy is the only match. And so they explain to him what they're going to do, and he agrees. And as they hook up to him and blood starts coming through the tube and he can see it, he looks up at his parents with his eyes very wide open and he says, now, how soon do I start to die? Well, he didn't understand. Or did he? Did he really understand something the rest of us don't and that your life is really only worth living if you can give it away? That life is not meant to be horticultured and planted so carefully, but it's meant to be freely shared with others. I started thinking about this, and I thought, now what is it that makes the sower just toss the seed out? 
Well, some scholars say that that's just what they do in autumn in the Holy Land. They don't bother to break up the ground unless it's summer planting. And so Jesus is just talking about business as usual. Maybe. Maybe. But I tend to think Jesus has got some other things in mind. And I started thinking, what is it? What kind of attitude does a person have to have to live their life extravagantly rather than live it calculatingly? And I decided on a few things. The first thing I'd share with you since it's Thanksgiving Sunday is, I think a person sows more freely if they have a sense of gratitude in their life. That they are more willing to part with what they have if they're grateful for having it in the first place. My son came home from law school. It's about a 400-mile journey, and he came home Monday night for Thanksgiving. About 60 miles out of town, his car started malfunctioning. We took it one place Tuesday. They couldn't do anything with it. We took it another place Wednesday. We took it the third place Friday, and it just wasn't coming together. And I was grousing about how in the world they can't find this, how in the world they can't fix it, and we've got to get him back on the road. He's got class on Monday. And my wife made this very interesting observation. She said, you know, there are four cars in our family. He could use another one. And I realized that I was focusing on the one of the four that wasn't moving appropriately and missing the three that we already had. You know, there are some scholars who look at the story of Adam and Eve and suggest that the original sin isn't pride at all, but the original sin is just plain ingratitude. Adam and Eve just can't thank God and appreciate for what they have, so they've got to go to the serpent to get more. I think a sower starts with gratitude. I think a sower furthermore has an attitude or a theory that there's more than enough to go around in life. That they deal from a theory of, and an attitude of abundance rather than a theory or an attitude of scarcity. You don't toss out all the seed you've got unless you think there's more that's coming back from somewhere. You don't share freely if you believe that life is just a very limited piece of pie or pie and I've got to get my piece while I can and hold on to it against you while you try to get part of my piece. That sort of attitude never yields an extravagant life. But an attitude that said, I've got some seed and I'm going to toss it out and it's going to land somewhere and more seed will come from it. That makes a person extravagant generous. Finally, I think there's just a matter of trust. The sower knows that's the way God works. And if you toss out seed, some of it's going to hit. Some of it's going to land and it's going to give you more than enough to continue. The sower trusts in how God works. The sower trusts in how nature works. So the sower is able to cast it out and cast it out widely. I mean, the bottom is, do you really trust that whether it's your time or your money or your love, that there's more where that came from? And do you trust the one who gave you all that to begin with? Famous ethicist John Cavanaugh years ago went to visit Mother Teresa. And before he left, Mother Teresa said, well, let me pray for you before you leave. And he said to Mother Teresa, oh, that would be great. He said, would you pray? There are so many things on my plate. There's so many issues to be decided. There's so many opportunities. Will you pray that I have clarity? And Mother Teresa said to him, I will not. She said, years ago, I prayed for clarity. And she said, I found that that's not really what I needed to go forward in life. What I needed was less clarity and more trust. See, horticulturists want clarity. They, they want to calculate. They want to know how it's going to work. They want the conditions to be optimal. But a sower, a sower learns 
to trust that someone else will handle and deliver the result. I'm reminded of something that happened in a monastery some years ago. It was an incredible monastery. Maybe the most incredible monastery in the world because all the brothers there had a specific talent, a very special talent before they could join the monastery. Most of them had had careers in other uh, parts of life. Some were artists, some were poets, some were engineers. And they brought everything they had into this monastery. And so the worship services in the cathedral were things of beauty as the best that art and science and uh, literature could bring together happened in the worship service. But there was one guy that just sort of, they took in, who didn't really come with a talent. The newest of the monks really had, was younger than most. He'd actually only had a career in the circus. He'd been a tumbler. He really didn't have anything to bring to contribute to the community. And so what would happen, he got sort of low self-esteem, and when they would have these beautiful worship services, he would sneak away from the large cathedral while they had high mass, and he would go downstairs into the crypt. One day in the crypt, he saw the statue of the Virgin Mary, and wanting to worship in some way, he worshipped the only way he knew how, he started doing tumbling tricks for the statue. One day during the service, they needed more candles. One of the brothers left the high mass service, came down underneath into the crypt, saw this brother tumbling in front of the statue, and he was aghast. When the worship service was over after high mass, he told the head abbot, he said, look, we got a problem. This guy is sneaking out of the worship service, I'm sure now regularly, and he's going downstairs, and he's just clowning around. Hmm, said the abbot, we must check into that. And so sure enough, the next time they had a large worship service, The abbot and the brother who was so offended made their way downstairs. And sure enough, it was exactly as they suspected. There was the new monk tumbling and doing a circus act in front of the statue. And the brother who was so offended started to speak, but the abbot held him back and said, just hold your tongue. And he held it for a moment. And when the tumbling act was over, the most amazing thing happened. The statue of the Virgin Mary came to life. She got down off the pedestal, went over to the young monk who was doing the circus act, patted him on the head, and blessed him in the name of God, and then went back to her pedestal. The abbot looked at the accusing brother and made this observation. There's a lot more worship that goes on down here than goes on up there. And the story goes that in a few years, they made the circus tumbler the head of the the whole monastery, and the monastery reached an age of spiritual depth and enlightenment that they had never seen before. What had happened? Upstairs they were calculating. Upstairs they were measuring. Downstairs they were just in joyful exuberance, extravagantly offering whatever they had. May God bless us that we will be more like those who are extravagant and less like those who calculate.